Welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, and I hope you've all had at least a little time in recent weeks to catch a breath and take care of yourselves before heading back into another unsettled and unsettling semester. Most of us had expected, or at least hoped for, a lot more stability this fall, but here we are. Those of you involved in teaching and learning at your colleges and universities, that means continuing to live in that sometimes uncomfortable space you've inhabited for the last 18 months. Will my class have to go remote tomorrow? Have I designed my course to withstand that kind of disruption? Can I be effective no matter what setting we're in? These may not be fleeting questions for institutions and instructors as higher education deals with a new reality that whether it's a global pandemic or hurricanes or forest fires, or any other kind of interruption or disruption, circumstances may require, and students may demand, flexibility in how and when academic instruction is delivered. To talk about those and other issues, I'm joined for this week's episode of The Key by Jeff Borden, Chief Academic Officer at D2L and Executive Director of the Institute for Interconnected Education. Jeff is a longtime faculty member, academic administrator, writer, and speaker. And while he spends a lot of time thinking and talking about technology, He's particularly focused right now on whether colleges and instructors sustain their pandemic-era focus on non-cognitive as well as cognitive needs. The two supportive angles of the learning triangle are affection and conation. And we now know you need both of those things if you want to look at the holistic learner. And so schools, I think, really got a, a good sight or insight into that. Students were able to finally sort of bubble that up as a, an actual need, maybe with better semantics and, and language around it. And I hope it sticks because I know that there were some schools that really made an effort intentionally to try to help students feel supported from a distance. They shouldn't give that up when COVID is quote unquote over. Before we begin today's conversation, here's a word from the sponsor of this week's episode, D2L, maker of the Brightspace Learning Platform. This episode of The Key is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the LMS partner for top institutions around the world. D2L is a global leader with a cloud-based platform that is easy, flexible, and smart. See how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. Jeff, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much, Doug. It's really, really great to be here and to speak with the audience. Thanks. You've been a longtime college instructor, you've been an academic administrator, in addition to your roles at technology companies and as a consultant and speaker, and thinking from those sort of varied perspectives, we're entering uh, yet another uh, academic term that is uh, a little confusing and, and, and uncertain. And I'm just curious about your sense of the biggest questions that professors and academic affairs types uh, institutions are dealing with as they try to uh, deliver and, and uh, offer productive learning environments in what continues to be a very unsteady uh, condition this fall. Yeah, it's the elephant in the room, right? We have to talk about it. Uh, yeah, afraid so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in, in my experience, uh, first of all, I, I think I gave 28 one-hour webinars during covid which was a, that's gotta be a record for me. I, I gave uh, three eight hour Zoom sessions for schools, uh, domestically, internationally. People were really trying to figure this stuff out. And I, I think 
you know, some of the biggest questions that I am still asked when I talk to presidents and provosts and CAOs, there are certainly those that are saying, when will we get back to quote unquote normal, whatever that, you know, looks like for the, in, in their, their world, which typically means when can we stop worrying about doing a tech? But I think for most leaders that are actually, you know, that have a little bit of vision that are really trying to do, do right by their institutions, they're really trying to figure out how much of what came out during this emergency situation do we keep? You know, what's, what's appropriate to, to have? Do we have, uh, for all students, the ability to take some courses online? We, we now have some fans in instructors that weren't fans before. You know, there were plenty of people saying online was second best at best. And now I think that there's, uh, I don't know, 10, 15% of those who were forced to teach online for the first time going, this is okay. I can, I can do this from home and I can still connect with my students. Now, that wasn't everybody's experience for sure. Uh, there were some who still came out at the end saying it was as bad as I told you it was going to be. And I think there's probably some self-fulfilling prophecy there. But there are definitely some trying to figure out in the world that's coming. And, and while I, I hope we don't have another COVID for, you know, 100 years like the Spanish flu, maybe. It's certainly possible that we're going to have them taking, you know, more precedence in our lives faster and faster. Um, and that doesn't even include states that deal with hurricanes or blizzards or fires on the West Coast. I mean, there's plenty of reasons to, to go remote at, at any given time, just depending on where you are. And having those plans in place and knowing what they are, I think is a, is a great question to ask and answer. And those are the questions that people are, are finally to a place where they can ask them. Um, that's, that's the stuff I'm hearing. That, that issue of academic continuity, which is the instructional equivalent of business continuity, really, is obviously important. What I've been thinking about even more is the question of how student expectations may have changed as a result of the experience of the last 18 months. You talked about some greater faculty acceptance of digital learning. And while it's too early to say, I think, it seems like there's probably been something similar happening on the student side even as we've seen many students uh, desperate to return to their campuses this fall. But if we assume there will be some change in student expectation, the question of what that looks like and how the institutions deal with that is really unclear to me. To the extent that we want, we see students expecting to be able to take one or more of their courses online. That's not a snap for every place, but that's a lot of places can handle that. The much trickier thing would be if, if students come to expect or want the ability to make decisions course, you know, class by class, Tuesday, one thing, Thursday, another, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I think it's too early to say, but I, I would posit that if that's what students want, a lot of institutions would struggle mightily to deal with that now and, and maybe for some time. How does that strike you? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, high flex, blend flex, you know, they, people are calling it different things. But the notion that an individual student can just make that choice on the fly and, and toggle back and forth day by day, you know, as Brian Alexander talked about toggle terms, that's toggle classes. And I, I don't know that many schools, from the, their infrastructure, from their support models, from their resources, I don't think they can handle that. Um, I, I really think that as you look at how schools need to work to, to get into a good place, there are really two things that, that come to mind. You know, one there was a, a pretty significant survey that came out. Uh, I'm a, I, 
I hate saying this out loud sometimes, but it's, it was by Chegg, you know, and I know they're very controversial for other reasons, but they, they surveyed students and said, one of the questions was, how well do you think your professor did with teaching online? And in the United States, because it was a worldwide survey, in the United States, students were not impressed. They did not think that their, their professors knew how to use online learning. Uh, so there obviously is some training that happened, needs to happen. Uh, it was interesting to me watching, you know, stories in even the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal and stuff when professors were saying we're being required to go online. They weren't necessarily also going to look at the lighthouses or the North Stars out there that say, here are the, here's the library of assets that will tell you the best ways to do this. They were often going next door to the, the other professor who also didn't know and saying, what are you doing? And they're saying, well, I, I'm going to try this. And so they said, okay, I'll try that too. And so there was a, there was a bevy of, of pr professors who didn't know what to do and didn't really go to the literature to see what to do. Similarly, we know that professional development is always a, a, a trial for, for folks. You know, in the, the book that uh, I just had come out last week, I'm, I'm the editor of this anthology. One of the professors who wrote one of the chapters is a professor in China. And he, he did a study, uh, a significant study, where they were talking about the difference between U.S. professors coming to China and those from other Western-based cultures and talking about how much professional development they come to the, the, this classroom with. And when it came to ed tech, when it came to knowing how to use a VLE, which is what they call it there, or an LMS, there's usually less than an hour of training on how to use that thing from American or North American professors. Whereas in most of the rest of the world, we're talking seven to 10 hours of how it works. So I think that there are some issues with going to the resources to say, here's the best stuff, and then getting the professional development around how to actually make that work. We obviously, we saw a lot of institutions ramp that up, uh, sometimes just in the uh, spring break period before the, the right. Uh, first closure. But then I think a lot over the summer, I'm curious, was that study in China pre-pandemic or? It, it was. Yeah. So so I would like to think, uh, and I, I, from talking to my colleagues in teaching and learning centers, I know they made a lot, they made a lot more available. And I think they saw a lot more take up of it. So I'd like to think those numbers, that gap might've closed uh, uh, because of the pandemic, but there's no question that we saw more of it. And I'd like to think that we saw institutions, when you talk about sort of the, the things you hope we might hang on to or that might last, I do think that the awareness of a lot of academic administrators about the importance of teaching and of teaching well, because we saw a lot of other things around about the institution kind of stripped away. And we saw a lot of people judging uh, the value of their the educational experience based on just what happened in the classroom if they were sitting in their parents' uh, house or whatever. So I'd like to think that that may have been a at least quasi-permanent change of, of recognition of the importance of that. Uh, and and I'd you know, be interested in what you, you, what, whether you sense that as well. What are other things that you hope maybe bright, bright spots or, or, or lessons learned that we might see influence in a positive way going forward. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll go to another survey that you guys ran inside higher ed, where you asked students, one of the questions that was asked was, what do you want to keep from you know, what happened during COVID 
the context of COVID teaching and learning. And while some of it was interesting in terms of the technology, you know, I thought it was very interesting. The students said, I, I like to maintain a back channel during a lecture with the professor, which I'm sure most professors were like, that's a horrible idea. I don't ever want to do that. <laughs> but it was, it was really positive to me to see both sides of the coin I'm about to explain. Students said, I want more opportunities to find support that are not necessarily class-based. I don't necessarily need tutoring. I need help with financial aid. I, I need to find a way to connect with other people. I need some friendships. And so, you know, the schools, I think, also got the message and started saying, we don't really have a good mechanism by which to support students other than classroom-based stuff. Uh, that stuff I've been, you know, talking about and writing about now for uh, half, a half a decade, the importance of what I, what I frame it as the learning triangle. There's cognition at the top. And for 50 years, that's all we focused on because it's easier to measure or it may measure the proxy of cognition, you know, tests, grades, scores. But the two supportive angles of the learning triangle are affection and conation. And we've known this for 110 years that, you know, you've got people, uh, maybe a third of people who they walk into a classroom without friendships, they cannot learn. Now we now know why. If you look at the neuroscience behind it, it's because they're creating glutamate rather than oxytocin. And glutamate is this little neurotransmitter that it comes out of your spine and starts to chomp at the neurons of cognition, which you need to think. And for some people, they're in such a state of stress because they don't have friendships that that's what's happening in their system rather than oxytocin being created, which allows them to say, hey, I'm liked, I'm supported, I've got relationships, therefore I can learn from an expert. Similarly, on the other angle, you've got conation. And that's what, you know, Carol Dweck has made now a, a, quite a name for herself, talking about grit and mindset and tenacity and resilience and just belief in yourself in self-direction. And we now know you need both of those things if you want to look at the holistic learner. And so schools, I think, really got a, a good sight or insight into that. Students were able to finally sort of bubble that up as a, an actual need, maybe with better semantics and, and language around it. And I hope it sticks because I know that there were some schools that really made an effort intentionally to try to help students feel supported from a distance. They shouldn't give that up when COVID is quote unquote over. So that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm curious whose responsibility that is, because I guess my sense is that many faculty members, when I've thought about what the a bright side. I do think that we saw many individual faculty members see their students as people in a way Agreed. that was that was over and above what had historically been the case when they were walking in a door and walking out 50 minutes later or whatever, and maybe having a, a half hour of uh, office hours at some point. But they were seeing things. They were they were sensing students at a very difficult time for many of them. And, and so I imagine a lot of individual faculty members may have a greater recognition of that, but I'm not sure that they, all of them would necessarily know how to respond to that whole human. And so who, where do you see the responsibility and what are some of the actions and, and processes or whatever that we might see either individual instructors or institutions do to try and ensure that those other parts of the student get supported? Yeah, I've, 
I've had some very interesting conversations with a guy named Michael Lee Stollard. He's a, a writer. Uh, he's not an educator per se, although he has worked with some educational organizations, TCU being prominent there. But he wrote a book called Connection Culture. And he talks about how, first of all, it is not the problem of faculty. It is the problem of the institution to help their students when it comes to connecting. And really, when I'm talking about connection, I'm, I'm going even beyond his definition and talking about those two underpinning, you know, affection and conation. And he gives a, a, a really excellent example of how TCU has done this based on largely some leadership from the top that said, this is our problem. So rather than saying, you know, student success or retention should be left at the feet of academics, which is always a little bit funny to me because first of all, they're never, no one's trained in how to retain students. But, but quite often the, uh, the directive is, you know, teach better. Well, what does that mean? They're teaching, you know, as the best they possibly can. What, what, does that, what does that look like? But when you start involving student affairs staff and, and other liaisons, when you start talking about counselors and advisors, even from enrollment to, again, retention, and even into alumni, you start to see the possibility for a safety net. But of course, we know that higher ed is filled with many more silos than safety nets. And that requires communication and connection. And that's where I've truly tried to make my mark in the last decade by creating underpinning infrastructure. There are technologies that can assist with this. You know, I, I'm not saying it's a technology play. It doesn't have to be. But without it, doing this at scale is, I would argue, almost impossible, if not impossible. So when you create a community environment that you really connect to the learning environment that you also then really connect to the student success and measurement tools that, that people have. I, I really don't care necessarily if you want to just go in and look at LMS data that says that 30% of your students are struggling because you're not looking at the, you know, the other two thirds of students who are struggling, not cognitively, but because they don't have relationships, they are not connected. They don't, they're not involved with an organization. They don't have that direction. And so there are groups out there, technologies out there that can, that can and should be connected that would actually help us save these students so that a faculty member can say, hey, I've got a problem student here, they're struggling academically, but I've also got a student affairs person who could say, hey, this person's in some trouble because they don't have any connection. This episode is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the easy, flexible, and smart choice for your LMS. With D2L's powerful learning analytics, top institutions create personalized experiences for every learner to deliver real results and can act in real time to get at-risk learners back on track. Discover how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. joined on the key today by Jeff Borden, Chief Academic Officer at D2L and Executive Director of the Institute for Interconnected Education. Jeff, you were just discussing the challenge at many colleges of thinking about the various academic, psychosocial, and other needs of any particular student and the disconnect between instructors, academic affairs, student affairs, and technology departments, all of which might have a role in addressing those needs. Is that disconnect primarily a data issue, a technology issue, an institutional structure issue? Is it all of the above? The siloed nature of, of higher ed has just, it really flared up and became obvious during COVID. Um, 
the idea that you know, student affairs just doesn't interact very well with academic affairs, which doesn't interact very well with IT. Um, and, and you really just get a sense of, you know, where, where does the, where did, for example, where does the tutoring office sit? Where does the writing center sit? Well, often it sits in student affairs. I, I don't know why, that's just sort of where it has sort of come out of, when it's highly academic in nature. And so you, you just start to see these little you know, fiefdoms and kingdoms of people saying, no, that's, this is my business, that's your business. And without the, the connective tissue, and that connective tissue certainly can be technology in order to make it more efficient, scalable, easier to communicate, et cetera. But even without that, you can do this culturally to a, to a degree, to an extent. They can have the conversations. They can have those, you know, as uh, Zappos used to call them, intentional collisions when they forced all of their 3,000 employees to go through one door. And people would have these intention, you know, in intentional collisions of saying, hey, did you see that problem that I saw last week? Because you might have some thoughts on that. And then they actually have conversations. That doesn't happen at most institutions of higher education. What impact do you think it, the last 18 months have had on perceptions about the role of technology in higher education and about the extent to which technology can be helpful or not in delivering instruction? I, I look at it as a continuum. There are the, the evangelists on one side, and unfortunately, they tend to overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> on the other side, there are the cave people, right. with, you know, colleagues against virtually right. everything, right? Right. In the middle, you've got people who are at a place where they say, look, if you can reasonably, logic, logically, and, and credibly show me that I can do something I couldn't do without the technology, then I'll, I'll, I'll try it. I'll give it a go. And if it works, I'll keep, you know, I'll keep at it. And I think that COVID gave us more people in the sort of reasonable middle than we've had there in higher ed specifically. You know, higher ed is, is as opposed to change as pretty much any sector I'm aware of. And technology is often associated with that change with, you know, I, as much as it pains me to say innovation is often synonymous with technology in higher ed, I think most of the innovation gurus would tell you that it should be synonymous with change management. But that's really what, it, what innovation is more about. Uh, technology might be that vehicle, but it may not. So I think we're finally at a place where we're seeing more people say, okay, I hadn't been willing to accept you might be able to do some things with technology that maybe you can do. And similarly, I think there are some, some of those evangelists who have now said, okay, I used to say you can do anything online. Maybe that's also not true. Maybe you can do many things online, but not everything. And so I, I think we have more in that reasonable middle. That's, that's my hope for uh, the infrastructure coming out of this at the instructor level. That resonates with sort of what I've generally heard. What then is the task at hand for institutions uh, and, and I guess also individual instructors, is it to, to really look hard at what can be best done in the various modes and figuring out how best to, to combine them or how, to, uh, what, what's the, if, if we've got a, a, uh, I don't know how to call it a detente, but if we've, if we've got sort of like a, a little bit more of a meeting in the middle and where, where things are possible and minds are somewhat open, What's the job to be done for the next five or 10 years or whatever in that environment? I would really hope that leaders at institutions 
and, and this has to be executively sponsored, I think, uh, that they would use this opportunity to do some experimentation. They've, they're going to have more availability of volunteers, I think, than they've had in, in past when it comes to technology-enabled educational things. I'm not just talking about in the classroom, although it certainly applies in the classroom, but even, uh, again, digitally supported organizations. You know, can I, as an online student, join a club today that I couldn't have joined two years ago because that was only in person? So every aspect of, of what that might look like, I think you, you will now see, especially this year and next year, more people willing to say, I'll give that a go. I'll try. I'll try to help make that happen. And then you can, you know, in the spirit of, this is the chief innovation officer in me coming out, you know, Jack Foster said, um, if you want to get a good idea, you need to get a lot of ideas. And you know, rather than taking all of our eggs and putting them in one strategic initiative basket next year, which will fail, and then we do it again the year after that, and it will fail, and then people just start getting used to that and saying, I'm not even going to help. If we can start saying, let's experiment, and let's try 10 things, 12 things, 20 things, and then the ones that are working, let's feed them. Let's add more resources, add more people, add more money, whatever that might look like. I think we might find a, a way to get to schools saying we have online, we have on ground, we have hybrid, and we are ready for whatever nature throws our way. We're ready for the next problem to be able to toggle in and out of whatever modality we need with tremendous fluidity, continuity, as you said at the very beginning. Uh, I think that that's how we can start to get there because it's going to take time. You know, as much as people are willing to, to utilize technology, they still have to practice. Your, your first online class will never be as good as your second, which will never be as good as your third, just like your face-to-face -face experience was the same way. So we still need time to practice as well as prepare. Do you sort of enter this next phase more optimistic than you might've been a couple of years ago that this ecosystem of, of institutions and people and uh, uh, can get to that place that you describe, uh, maybe not all of them, and, and, but enough of them that students will be served at least as well, if not better? I am as optimistic for digital assistance as ever. Um, again, I'm not, a, I'm not saying everything has to be digital. That's, that's just not my, pers my, my perspective. But I think that we've got more people who are willing to try, whether that's because of some forced empathy. <laughs> you know, to your point, as you said earlier, there were, I think, some faculty who had treated students like widgets in the past who had a rough time during COVID. They lost people or they had people get sick or they had people struggle. Uh, and so when students came to them and said, I've got someone at home who's struggling, or I've got someone at home I've lost, they suddenly had connection that they hadn't really had prior to COVID. So we've not only got that sort of socio-emotional lens of uh, sort of enhanced augmented uh, connectivity and overlap, we've got the same thing with technology with people, you know, students said, I don't want to take a class online. Just as faculty had said, I will never teach a class online. And both of those, those groups were in online classes in the last year and a half. And again, some of them said, hey, this isn't so bad. So I think that we've just got this sort of moment of shared empathy that we can, we can capitalize on. And the best schools, I think, will, uh, rather than just putting out all the fires that continue to come up.
That was Jeff Borden, Chief Academic Officer of D2L, sharing his insights about the fluid landscape for teaching and learning at the start of yet another unstable fall. I was particularly struck by how this conversation, which was nominally about the role of technology and instruction, kept veering instead to much more fundamental human issues, the state of mind of students, the need to better prepare professors to succeed however they're teaching, knocking down institutional barriers that prevent faculty and staff members from seeing and serving the whole student. Eager as we all are to get back to normal, let's try to hold on to that increased awareness many of us gained about the importance of the human side of our work, of our colleagues, our students, our clients. Maybe take a beat before you fire off that email or dial that number in anger or honk that horn extra loud. The world is still a little out of whack and a little compassion never hurts. That's all for this week's episode of The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next week, stay well and stay safe.